and welcome to Matt and Kevin Talk Church, two pastors, two old friends from two different denominations on two different coasts talking about faith, culture, the Bible, and the ins and outs of church ministry. I'm Matt Curtis, pastor of Decision Life Church and Evangelical Free Church in Wairika, California. And I'm Kevin Sheehan, the associate pastor of Reformed Presbyterian Church, a PCA church in Ephrata, Pennsylvania. Welcome to the podcast. We are recording this on Tuesday, January 12th, and just as a little bit of a housekeeping note, we've decided that this year we're going to try posting all of the episodes on Wednesdays about 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific each week. Uh, that gives us a little bit of a chance to record and edit and, and get it nice and set up and have a consistent time each week in which they're posted for those of you that you know, actually like look for this and want to listen to it. I th- I, both of our listeners are both really grateful for that piece of information. We'll appreciate yeah. it. Rather than trying to post it late Monday okay, night. You got it. Anyway. <laughs> sometimes I get to it. Sometimes I don't. So, yeah. uh, so look for it Wednesdays, 3 p.m. Eastern each week. Mm-hmm. That's when we'll be doing it. Um, so last week was our first time posting it Wednesday at 3 p.m. And last week was January 6th. About 3 p.m. Eastern was about the same time all of our eyes were focused on Washington, D.C. and all of the incredible events going on there. Um, And we thought that this week we ought to address that. Um, We have, as Matt prayed before we started, we have no interest in stirring the pot or creating division, but uh, we do want to think Christianly, biblically about the events in our world. Uh, And we thought it would be helpful to bring on a guest with us. And actually it's a guest I've been wanting to have on for quite a while. We're excited to have him with us. So folks at RPC will recognize, uh, are familiar with him. So I'm introduced to you, Mark Draper. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Great to be with you guys. So Mark, why don't you just give us a, you know, one minute, two minute introduction, who you are, what you do. So my name is Mark Draper. Uh, I teach uh, church history and uh, history, just regular history uh, at uh, Lancaster Bible College, also at Evangelical uh, Theological Seminary, uh, both in the Lancaster, Lebanon, Central PA area. I've been teaching church history now for almost 10 years and uh, focus a lot on American church history, Reformation church history. Uh, I've done a lot of research in that area, um, done a lot of teaching in that. And I had the unique experience this year of teaching an undergraduate class uh, on the history of evangelicalism and fundamentalism in the 20th and 21st centuries leading up to the election, which was very fascinating. That needs its own episode right there. Yes, yeah. That we need to do. Uh, we need to have you back to talk about it, that. It, well, first of all, it was fascinating to find out what they were fascinated by, right? So apparently, the Jesus right. people are very fascinating things for 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 I guess they're Gen Zs now. Uh, but but really, starting the class it was it was a great way to it was a great time to actually teach the class because to say mm-hmm. you really can't understand the electoral politics we're going to we are watching. Because, of course, the class starts in September until you understand this story. Yeah. Um, particularly if teaching at a place like Lancaster Bible College or Evangelical Seminary. Nice. Yeah. So let's get into this a little bit. You know, last Wednesday, I was just uh, I was reading in the afternoon and decided I need to look something up. So I got online to look something up. And like my when I open up a new tab. The homepage is just like got news, weather, you know, whatever. And of course, flashing across the screen are images from the Capitol building. And so that pretty much shot the rest of my Wednesday. That was pretty much what I was dialed into. Uh, so I wanted to kind of ask you guys, like, how did you respond to that on different levels? Like just personally, like as an American, as a Christian, as a minister of the gospel, which we all are in different ways. Just uh, just take a few moments, just like kind of like walk us through Wednesday and the, maybe the days afterwards, just. I think I'm still processing it to be totally like honest. Like one of the, I, we've talked about this before, but one of the problems with our age is you have to have an opinion and you have to have it right now. And I'm still kind of processing through all of that and what it means. And I've not really said a lot publicly about it because I'm still kind of deciding what I, th- I mean, of course you condemn the actions. It's easy to do that. Um, but it's, uh, there's just a lot to think through, but I will say one of the interesting things was, you know, that morning, uh, I was meeting with a group of pastors here in my office. We meet every other Wednesday 
And one of the things that we were talking about, and this is before we knew this was going to be going on, where I was outlining that I thought violence as a result of the political divide in our country was a real possibility and was like laying out some of the ideas of David French in his book, Divided We Fall, where he kind of describes some possibilities. And so we were talking about that. And then like literally 15 minutes after the meeting broke, like, you know, there's just my phone blows up with, from those guys going, dude, you, this is so weird. But what you were just describing just, just happened. Huh. Um, and so there was kind of a surreal thing around that. I think personally, I, and I just, it made me sad. Just sadness that this is what it's come to and that it didn't have to come to this. I don't think, I think there's been a lot of opportunities really over the last five years to speak and think differently. And we've just never taken those opportunities when they've come. And so here we are. Um, I think both as a, a Christian and minister of the gospel, I think uh, my response is to lean into uh, the goodness and sovereignty of God. Um, that he is still good. He is still in control of all these things, even as it's going on. I can't do a thing about what's happening in Washington, um, but he can. And I'm trying to... Uh, focus on that he, he, his will is going to be done no matter what happens between now and January 20th, that he has a purpose in it and I can't control it. And so I'm, I'm actually trying not to give a ton of energy to thinking about it and dwelling on it. Like that's kind of where I'm landing right now. I, I think, uh, I think that's a safe word. You know, I think it's always safe to say, well, you know, I'm still processing. And, and you're right, we're expected to respond immediately, right? right. Um, social media has done that. The 24 yeah. news cycle has done that. Um, you know, we expect the, the news pundits to respond immediately and to have an opinion immediately when they yell at each other on TV. And, and so, um, so I, think that's, I think that's healthy. You say, okay, I'm still processing. And I think we're still learning about what happened. I don't think we still have all the details yet. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I think that's an important part of it. It seems like more details keep coming out. Uh, I was, I was off. I had, I was off from, from work. I was just kind of working around the house. I had flipped on the TV. Just, I'd heard people, uh, talking about being concerned about something happening on January 6th because Congress was meeting to certify the electoral college. Um, and then all of a sudden I, I, I kind of turned on the news and this is what's happening. I, I watched it for a couple of minutes. Uh, and then kind of went out and did some work. And then, of course, like you said, um, your phone blows up, right? People start texting you. And, and a friend of mine said, can you believe what these people are doing? Uh, and I said, my response was, yes, yes, I can. And this is where we are. Um, this, this is where we are um, as a country right now. And so, and a little little background, my, my back, my studies has been deeply in the antebellum period, the period leading up to the American Civil War. Um, and, and recently just teaching uh, significantly on the late 1960s. And so I can't not help but see as a historian, see commonalities between the antebellum period, the 1960s, and, and really the, the last 10 years uh, in American uh, electoral politics. And so I, I can't say I was overly surprised, Kevin. I, I really wasn't. I mean, the extent, yes, um, but I, I really wasn't surprised. In fact, in some cases, I, I was fearful it would be worse. You know, I don't know if that's my Augustinian, everyone's depraved. I don't know what that is, but I, I just sort of- Well, there's still time. Yeah, so. right, right, right. So personally, yeah, personally in an American, I, I kind of really wasn't surprised. Uh, be, and, so, and I think being a historian provides some perspective, right? Because political rhetoric will cause people to make actions. I mean, um, it, it's the political rhetoric that led someone like John Brown to invade Harper's Ferry. Uh, it plays a role in that. So yeah. it, it does. It has an impact. Yeah. Uh, as a Christian, uh, again, I, I guess I would say I'm almost not surprised, right? My, my, as a Christian, though, I was concerned to see people conflating Christianity with what was going on in Washington. That troubles me. Except that that's been happening, like, I mean, that's not new. No. I mean, that's not even new from the last five years. That's, I mean, the marrying of Christianity and, cons you know, American conservatism. I mean, that's at least 40 years old. 
I mean, I mean, you're the historian, but like, yeah, I mean, yeah. but like it, it, at least 40 years old. Yeah. And, and, and I would, I would probably argue you, you, you go back even further. I think the late sixties right. is when um, you, you start to see that. Um, yeah. Start yeah. to see that marriage, particularly with the Nixon presidency and Billy Graham. Uh, and of course I was born in 1972 uh, and that's the same year that Billy Graham comes out and nationally endorses the Republican candidate, right. Richard Nixon, for president. Yeah. And, and just I mean, and just to be fair, like there's nothing wrong with like being a Christian and as a Christian engaging politics uh, around conservative values and issues. There's nothing wrong with that. We're not like Billy Graham doing that's fine. You know what I mean? Like, I don't have an issue with that. Um it's when we go, okay, if you don't think this way or that way about this issue or that issue, then you're not a follower of Jesus. That's where we, I think, cross a line. And I think that became much more pronounced in the Reagan era from, I mean, to my way of, I mean, again, you're the historian. I'm just, you know. Yeah, no, no, Matt, I, uh, I think you're right. I think you're right. But uh, I think the lesson from Billy Graham is too, in that, in that 1970s episode is that, 72, he endorses Richard Nixon. Uh, 74, Watergate happens, and we start to find out more truth about who Richard Nixon really was. And after that time, Billy Graham really does create a separation between himself and politics. He'll go pray at the White House. He'll do that. Uh, but he, he does not endorse candidates uh, after that experience with Nixon. So his experience in politics, I think, um, caused him to have a, a degree of separation that yeah. you just said, uh, as a kid growing up in the 1980s, my, as myself, you didn't see the separation. In fact, you saw Christian leaders, you know, wearing the badge of culture warrior and, and, and seeing uh, a political party being their, their mantle. But let me say this as well, and, and this is something I think that's really important. Protestantism in America on the right and the left one has a an exception an american exceptionalism built into it yeah okay so there's that part of it the second part is they both see in some regards they both have seen uh since the late 1960s political operatives and political um machinery as a means of promoting their quote-unquote values yeah Right. Um, so it, it's not something that just happens on the right. The left has done the same exact thing. It's, yeah. it's, it's almost an American problem more than just a, a Christian problem. Yes. I, I mean, a hundred percent. However, I mean, the Christian, I mean, theological underpinnings would say that at least if you're being consistent would say that the per pursuit of power is not really the way that gets right. done. Right. So, so, so that's the problem. And, and that's why for churchmen, it's a particular, it's a particular kind of problem because it runs against the grain of our theological underpinnings. And there's an inherent inconsistency. And I think searing of the conscience that happens around those issues. So again, maybe we're getting too far afield, but, um, but yeah, I agreed it's an American problem, but the, the theological underpinnings and, and the conflation of those underpinnings um, is part of the issue as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, th that even gets to your fourth question there, Kevin, as far as how do I see this as a Christian, as a minister of the gospel? Yeah. Um, my, my role is slightly different than, than the role that you both have. Yeah. Um, and, and, and this is where I, I, I feel that by trying to inform the people of God, the story of maybe how we have conflated at times politics and the kingdom of God, or um, how, uh, how we can be seduced uh, by the city of man, to use Augustine's terms. Um, mm. I think that that's part of my, is a lot of people just don't know. I mean, uh, if, if, if I didn't go to seminary and study uh, church history, I'm not sure I would have understood what was happening in the 1980s with American evangelicalism and Ronald Reagan. I would just assume that was that was just normative. Uh, to be a Christian was to be a Reaganite, right? Uh, I wouldn't have known any different because everybody around me, my community accepted that. My community uh, catechized us in, in that. 
so I think knowing the story and teaching the story is very helpful. What about you, Kevin? I want to hear you respond to some of those questions you put to us. I think just the, the imagery of seeing the Capitol being overrun was kind of shocking just to the eyes, you know, just, just the optics of it was sort of stunning to see our Congress people, you know, on the run in lockdown and all that. I wouldn't say I'd be kind of with Mark and that I wouldn't say that I was surprised either as an American or as a Christian. I, yeah. I think just the rhetoric that's been fueled for the last four or five years, um, it's not, but I was surprised this hasn't happened sooner to tell you the truth. I'm surprised there hasn't been political violence much sooner than, than now. I, I would have guessed <laughs> it would have already had happened. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I read stuff from, uh, you know, there's one journalist researcher in particular who's done a lot of research into like autocratic movements in Central Asia. And she's just been like spot on with, you know, everything that's happened over the last five years in terms of predicting what, what the next moves are going to be. Um, so it, it didn't feel like a surprise to me. I think as a Christian, my overwhelming response was just one of sadness that somehow um, the name of Jesus was brought into this. Uh, and even now seeing people, whether online or whatever, who are defending it and defending it supposedly like as Christians. If not defending it, at least going like, well, it was Antifa or, or whatever. Or a, like, an awful lot of yadabots and whatabouts yeah, and, yeah. And, um, and like, yeah, but censorship, you know, it's like, um, and that's, that's frustrating to me. I think it just, it revealed a lot yeah. um, that I, again, maybe not surprised, like I kind of knew was there, but I was surprised how uh, maybe the ferocity of it of this whole idea of, you know, what you, what you've been saying, this conflating Christianity with the Republican party and defended at all costs, you know, it's, that's really troubling to me again. Yeah. Like, I don't really care how you vote. Uh, I really don't. And I can understand the arguments for voting one way or the other. That's fine. Um, what I do care about is like, where is your heart? What, what are you chasing after? What are you lusting after? Is it political power? Or is it the power of the gospel? And this is where I think too, sometimes church history is helpful in that, you know, when the church has political power, it usually doesn't go well. Yeah. And when the church is more on the fringes of the political state, whatever that might be, its witness tends to be more focused and uh, purified, I guess, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Uh, just to respond to your guy just saying you weren't surprised. Like, I'm not surprised that it happened. The parts for me that are surprising is not the right word, but I'm like taken aback by it. Like, I don't know if you guys saw Dr. Russell Moore's article yesterday. I did. Where, yeah. where his basic argument is like lies are bad and insurrection is bad. And like, you know, what five years ago would not have been controversial. You know, like it, it, it would not have been controversial to go lying is bad. <laughs> lying repeatedly and over and over again is bad um, would not have been shocking. And now that's like that, that there's an argument about that among Christians is just weird. Like, yeah. I don't know what that means. Like that, like, wait, that, I mean, you can like, you can have an argument about whether or not lying took place, I guess, or you can have an argument about, you know, whether or not it was in fact an insurrection. If you want to have arguments about that, fine. I mean, I don't know that I'm going to give my energy to that, but fine. But that's not what the argument, I don't know if you follow the comments section on that, but it's bananas. Like that, that to me is like the shocking part. You know, it, it's something, and this, this might provide some insight. I have a, a friend of mine who's an author uh, and he, he's made a comment to me and, and he said, um, it's interesting how particularly Again, we, this could be another podcast. What is an evangelical? Uh, but evangelicals, oftentimes, you talk about the culture as if they're not part of it, as if they're somehow outside of it and they're talking about something else. You know, like a scientist is, is over top of something. Right. And, 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 and I think he's right about that. We, we often, I think, in our subculture, <laughs> that, that that can come up. And so I think the problem is that we don't realize how much we are inf infected by the various cultures we are swimming in. Yeah. 
And, and, and so that is, is problematic. Um, and I think that's part of the tension here um, is that we're not outside of culture, we're part of culture. And the very fact that culture is more comfortable with a lot of different things, we can be more comfortable with those. Um, Carl Truman's new book on the self has, it was an interesting read. I'm reading it right now. Yeah. Um, I'm about a fourth of the way through and man, yeah. so good. And I'm about, I got about 10 pages left. I would have gotten it finished if, if my wife didn't tell me I was done reading for the night and no, no spoilers. And, no, I'm kidding. Yeah, no, no. But, but, but one of the things he says in the book that I think is very helpful to yeah. get to this point is um, he talks about uh, that we cannot talk about culture in that way that the very things he's pointing out about what has happened to the American self. And of course he's pulling on Charles Taylor's work and, and people like that. Philip Reef and yeah, yeah. Philip Reef and Alistair McIntyre. And, and, but what he's saying is we, we, we are all influenced by this, whether it's yeah. expressive individualism, whether it's emotivism, whether it's Alistair right. McIntyre's idea that truth is now preference. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so we're all influenced by that. And so therefore, uh, and, and maybe, and this is how I've kind of framed even uh, the Trump presidency. In many ways, I think that there have been people in this country who have felt victimized, right? And, I, and Carl talks about that. There's a victimization thesis that he talks about. Yeah. Good to be the victim now. And, and in many ways, if, if truth is preference, and this gets to your point about lying. If truth is preference, which I think he's right, then we're back to Nietzsche and its will to power. Yeah. And, and so now you have, so what in many ways, the way to understand political leaders now is, do you just go hire your own, to use Nietzsche's term, ubermensch, mm -hmm. to do your bidding? Uh, and if that person needs to lie, if that person needs to change, redefine the constitution, uh, and this can happen in both parties. It can happen in any political party. It, it does happen in both parties to some yes. degree. Like, yes. so it's not as though the Republicans have the, mar no. the market cornered on, no, I didn't. Yes, you did. Well, we just saw you. But I mean, yeah, I mean, all of that is, yeah. And this is something that I, I'm not seeing talked about uh, in the media, in, in the biosphere, in the blogosphere is I really think, and maybe from reading Carl's book has helped me process a little more, but what, what we're seeing is an epistemological civil war taking place in the Western world. And yeah. is this quote unquote insurrection really a symptom of, of an epistemological civil war that's been going on since the late sixties. Yeah. Um, that, that's or, you know, back to romanticism, if you're going to be exactly, you know, exactly. Yeah, like, you yeah. know, Blake and Shelley and Percy and all that. Yeah. Exactly. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. And so have, have you, you almost need the long view of history to say, and now I think I'm getting into part two, how do we get here? So I don't want to go too yeah, far. Yeah, yeah. But, but I, I think that one of the things we as Christians of the gospel have to realize is we can be infected and seduced by the cultures around us as much as we're trying to critique it. Yeah. Yeah. I like sure. what you, you, know, you said something about the victimization is now sort of like <laughs> the end thing to be. And it does strike me how much of the the volatility of our political moment seems to be based in fear. Mm -hmm. Like there's just a, a fear. I mean, just a trepidation that a Democrat would win the White House, you know, or, or a trepidation that, you know, we're going to lose our religious liberty or whatever it is. But it seems to be a lot of it just fear driven, which... Yeah. You know, the irony is a lot of it's coming from the same people that six months ago were saying faith, not fear when it comes to a virus. <laughs> God can protect you from the virus, you know, faith, not fear. But now, but, you know, but now it's kind of the other way around and they're just like terrified of what might happen to them politically, which, you know, again, kind of gets back to like, what do we value? What do we treasure? Is it political power? Is it political freedom? Last week, Matt and I talked about this idea of, 2020 really exposed this desire, this deep, deep desire for freedom as the highest value in the land, uh, and this you know just hatred of authority of, of all sorts. And it seems like fear has driven an awful lot of this as well, which you know kind of maybe get into like our roles as ministers is just to you know combat the fear with 
And I think Matt, you led with this of just that God is good and sovereign. He'll be faithful to us whether we're slaves in Egypt or in Babylonian captivity or sitting under Joe Biden as president, you know, or Nero as king or, you know, whatever. So yeah, it does seem like fear is driving a lot of this, but so I think you're right, Mark, we're kind of getting into the second half. So maybe we should just take a quick break and we'll talk yep. a little bit more. I'm going to have some other ideas about how, do, how do we get here? How do we get to this moment? And then where do we go from here? So yeah. uh, we'll take a quick break and uh, we'll be back in a minute. Hey, we're back. It's Matt and Kevin. We're talking church and we have Mark Draper with us to help us talk church. And really, we're talking about the events of January 6th. And really, we're talking about the events of the last five years. And really, we're talking about the whole course of human history. I mean, no, no, no big thing. Just, I mean, you know, just going to kind of summarize it all for you. And, um, <laughs> and uh, just trying to make sense of, of our cultural moment, um, especially from a Christian and biblical point of view. So we're just going to ask two questions to the latter half of the podcast here. And just how did we get here and where do we go from here? And we've already kind of dabbled with this a little bit. Uh, you know, Mark, you're speaking in the first half and something that came to mind as well that I'd been thinking of is this idea of, of relativism. And I remember 20 years ago as I was wrapping up um, a, a BA in philosophy and relativism was sort of the, the big thing then and the in the collective you know, public square was this idea of moral relativism. What's, what's right for you? What's right for me? There's no real objective moral truth. It's just whatever's, you, know, you kind of make your own moral truth. And it seems to me like that's been mostly done away with. Like you don't hear that talked about much anymore. I think especially with like the LGBTQ movement, they no longer were saying it's, well, that can be right for me and that can be right for you. It's like, no, 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 there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. And so we sort of moved past moral relativism, but where it seems to have reared its ugly head is it's come up in this idea of epistemological or alethic relativism, meaning, well, what's true for you is different than what's true for me. Two plus two can be four for you, but it's five for me. And it's just the whole idea of truth itself. We have no grounding. And that's one of the I think that's one of the that was one of the eye-opening things for me in 2020 was that there were things that just seemed to be true, like just facts that were largely denied from people that I thought would just know better. You know what I mean? And, and, and in all sorts of spheres. But you know, if we're gonna kind of bring it back to politics and just this whole idea, these people are uh, storming the gates for reasons for, for you know, for lies, for things that just like seem obviously patently untrue that they're either believing or pretending to believe to go along with whatever narrative they're, they want to believe in. You said, Kevin, I think makes sense. I mean, when we were in college, we're close to the same age. When we were in college in the 90s, right? There, it's yeah, relativism, yeah. moral relativism. And where we are today, and, and, and this was a book we talked about in the break, uh, book Cynical Theories that I read recently. What, what I came away from that is this is so where I think we are today is we're not relativistic in the sense that they talked about in the 90s. We are quite, we do challenge truth. We, we, we truth is now preference. That right. part, is, that part right. is relativistic. Yeah. But when we were growing up and we were learning about postmodernity, right? And, and of course, if you ever try to define postmodernity, you've proven you're not one. And, <laughs> and so, right. And so, which is always a trick question on an exam. And so I, what, I, what I think is we were taught, well, it's moral relativism and there's an antithetic antithesis to meta-narratives, right? They don't like meta-narratives. Micro-narratives are fine, meta-narratives, no. The reality now is we have, the, the, the people have meta-narratives, right? Whether it's a, a gender narrative, whether it's a lack of gender narrative, whether it's a QAnon narrative, uh, there, there are meta narratives today. So you, what you do is you, you take truth as a preference, and then you construct a meta narrative out of it. That's one way you can do it, right? That's one way. And to so, so, just to help our people, a, a meta narrative is a story you tell yourself about the nature of things. Like, right? That, that's, that's how we're using that. I just want to. Right. Right. Fair. Meta narrative is big story. The overarching story. What is the overarching story? 
And yeah, so yeah. we, but when we were in college, they always said that this is, this is what postmoderns don't like. They, they don't like these overarching stories because who gets to control that story? Right. And now we're in a position where we have compete. It's, it's, we're relativistic of enough. We've used postmodernity to deconstruct truth, but now we reconstruct new meta narratives based on whatever our, in fact, you can't even use the word preference, right? You can't use that. It's not my preferred. It's, this is my, this is what I believe. Um, yeah. And I think that's, that's really what's not being talked about is there's a real epistemology problem, which is how you know what you know, right? That's, yeah. There's a real epistemology problem happening in our culture and there are competing understandings of how you know what you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm reading Desiring the Kingdom by James K.A. Smith. Oh, good stuff. Into it. Um, and it's got a really interesting... I'm not that far into it yet, but it's got a really interesting uh, kind of hypothesis that he's working on, and uh, which I thought was actually kind of helpful in trying to understand uh, these these latest events. Um, you know, one thing that he's saying is that you know so much of our education is uh, the idea of of transferring information, when really it should be more about formation, and you know, and this idea of. Um, we don't actually live our lives based on what we think, but based on what we love or desire. Mm-hmm. Um, right. and, and the argument kind of goes is that Christian education then should be more about forming our desires and our loves than it is about necessarily transferring information to one another. Um, which I was just kind of thinking about that, you know, again, kind of in our cultural and political moment, it's, you know, and you kind of rack your main brain saying, how can someone believe these crazy things? It's like, well, maybe Smith is right. And they don't really believe it. They're not really operating on information and thought process, but there's a certain desire and a certain love for how the world ought to be. As, as James Smith would say, they have an idea of what human flourishing is and an idea of what the good is. And that's what drives them not just information. And so it's, well, not a, it's just not a matter of making sure they get the right information, but rather shaping their desires so that they uh, desire correctly. So like as a Christian to say like, I want to shape your desire, not so that you love the world, but so that you love Christ and the church and so on. And Smith would say all that stuff is happening under the hood is what he would say. Like he would, he, right. he would talk like, like all of that stuff is like covert going on underneath the surface of what you're, even what you're saying verbally, even um, now, I think his categories are maybe not as neat as, as all that. I mean, he's studied it a lot more, so I'm happy to defer, I suppose. But uh, I think to answer the question, how did we get here? I mean, that's, in many ways, a much longer conversation than we've got time for because there's a lot of threads. But I think a big part of it is uh, we have, we talked about this earlier, um, we regard, and I think Christians fall into this as much as anybody, freedom is the highest good, right? And as soon as something other than God is the highest good, uh, corruption and all manner of you know, debauchery is what follows because that just corrupts our heart in such a profound way because our desire is misordered and bent. We've taken a good thing and made an ultimate thing and we will do anything uh, to defend our ultimate thing. You know, it's a little bit like where it goes from James, where it goes from, I want it to, I've got to have it to, I'll do anything to get it. You know, like, yeah. and, and so that's where we are. Religious freedom is a good thing, but we've gone from, uh, it's a good thing to, I want it to, I have to have it to, I will side with anyone or anything to get it. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that's part of how we got here is we, we, some, and, and the thing is, is, I say we, as though I'm not a part of it, but I think there are times where of course I am Um, that, we just value that so much. Even something like, you know, defense of the unborn is a good thing, um, a good and right thing. But is it an ultimate thing? I mean, I mean, that's the, I, I think all of that is a big part of how we got here. Now, there are historical reasons, of course, 
for how that happened. And it didn't happen like one at one particular moment, but it's sort of, sort of in this slow trickle, um, especially as culture changes and changes seemingly faster than is reasonable. So all of that plays in. But I think it's, we, like we talked about last week, we love freedom so much that it has corrupted us in, in ways that we're not even aware of. So that's, that's how I would answer that question. I know this is an odd way to go. Usually the interviewers do the questions to the, the guests, but I, I right. want to ask you both the questions since you're both pastors Yeah, uh, and might have a different insight into this. And, and this is somewhat of a trick question because I've heard some of this, <laughs> one of your sermons. So, all right. So, so that's Kevin. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh-oh. Is it, is it fear? Is it fear? Which I think you're right. But is it fear of losing our comfort? Is comfort the ideology here? That this is uncomfortable for this epistemological change to happen. This is uncomfortable for the fear that I could lose my religious freedom as I define it. Is it, is it a comfort thing? Uh, that we're so, uh, we're so married to being comfortable that we're willing to go out in very um, extreme ways to, to keep that comfort. I think that's certainly tied into it. I mean, obviously comfort is another one of those big values and idols in our, in American culture. I mean, the whole American dream, the whole I mean, there's a reason why the prosperity gospel took root here. Mm. That comfort is, comfort is a big thing. You know, I, I just saw recently, it's going on on Facebook. There's a, there's a local pastor here who made a video, put it on Facebook. It, it, yeah, he was, he was apparently there in Washington, D.C. And here's, here's the truth of what really happened. And I didn't listen to the whole thing. I listened to about 45 seconds and I just had to turn it off. Um, but I looked up, you know, the church that he's a part of and looked up kind of his, you know, about me page and all that kind of stuff. And, and he's pretty, you know, far deep into the uh, charismatic movement, word of faith, um, Rima uh, training center, I think it's called. And, and, and I do kind of wonder, and I'm just wondering if, if we're more prone to be seduced by politics because of the prosperity gospel and the lie that has gone out that if you're a Christian, you should be comfortable. And if you're not, you know, or prosperous or whatever, um, fill in your own synonym. And if you're not, and something is, something has gone awry <laughs> and it's the Lord's will that you be prosperous or comfortable or healthy or whatever. And therefore, if there's a, a, an avenue to attain it, then that's what the Lord is asking you to do even if that's kind of extreme political measures. Um, so I do kind of wonder if, I mean, this guy was like the deep end of, you know, health and wealth, prosperity gospel, but obviously that's creeped into the church on all levels. Yeah. Um, so, so I wonder if that, you know, I just kind of wondered, like it, has that sort of tainted the way that we view how life should be. And therefore if life isn't that way, something has gone awry and, um, surely the Lord's hand is behind this because it's helping me to attain what the Lord's will for me is. Well, I mean, I don't know what Shirley has to do with it. Let's just leave her out of it. She didn't have anything to do with this. So, but uh, uh, to, to answer your question, I, I, I would, I mean, to answer your question, Mark, I would answer it in two, like, sort of two ways. One, I would maybe not frame it as comfort, as more of a profound misunderstanding of uh a theological understanding of suffering like Mar like mm -hmm. Kevin and I talked uh, I don't know a week or two ago how we think suffering um, is something strange that's happening mm -hmm. whereas 150 years ago or 100 years ago there was no expectation that all of your adult children were going to survive to adulthood you know what I mean like yeah. whereas now like any any sense of difficulty is not just like bad but is to be resisted with everything we have and so i think that understanding is certainly an underpinning of where we are and i think there's a subset part of it is we're talking about this as though there's only one thing happening when really i think there are a lot of things happening and so so you're correct that like a fear of being uncomfortable or a, or a pursuit of comfort is absolutely a part of it but i also think and maybe this is just where i am i don't know um, the evils of abortion, the belief in that, the belief in that run so deep and, and, and wanting to fight that supersedes all of the other things they believe in. 
So, so if they can get a good result, like Roe versus Wade being overturned, which by the way, abortion is still legal in 28 states, if that happens tomorrow, but that's an aside and has nothing to do with anything, but their belief in that good outcome is so strong that that is more important than witness or the gospel. I mean, they would never say that. They wouldn't verbalize that. But that's what's happening under the hood. The belief in that, and it's a good thing, has been warped to, to an ultimate thing. In that, so achieving that outcome becomes so important that okay, so what if he's a liar? I'm not electing a pastor. I mean, that, I mean, that's the way the mm-hmm. thinking goes because that outcome is so important. Um, so I, I don't think it's fair to go, they just don't want to be comfortable. I, I think there's a, at least, or uncomfortable, I think there's a deep-seated belief in a good thing that has become so ultimate, for at least for some, that they're willing to trade anything to get it. Hmm. Like that's, that's a part of what I think is happening. There's another interesting article I read, I think this morning by Joe Carter. I don't know if you saw it, it's about fantasy yeah. ideology. Yeah, I saw that. And I thought it was interesting. I don't, you know, I need to think on this a little bit more, but basically the idea is that, and he had some anecdotes and whatever to back this up. So some people are involved in movements like this, not because they even necessarily believe in the truth of it, but they just want to be caught up in something bigger than themselves. They're sort of playing out like this fantasy in the sense of like, I was a part of this movement. Yeah. And it's like that alone, which, you know, there's a part of that that's good and right in that, you know, like we, we, we'll talk about like, you know, you're part of the kingdom of God and you're part of the great commission, whatever role you play, whether it's minor, major, whether you are just, you know, offering water to the thirsty or clothes to the naked or the, you know, whatever you do to the least of these, it's big in the eyes of the Lord because it's done in faith and it's done in his name. And so there is a right way of thinking about like, yeah, we are a part of something bigger than ourselves because we're united to Christ and all that. And so the, you know, the warped view of that is I'm a part of something bigger than myself because I'm a part of you know, whatever movement it is. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I, I'm not totally sure what I think of all that in terms of the most recent events, but, you know, perhaps that kind of gets thrown into the milieu as well. Yeah. Or how did we get here? And again, just to clarify what I was saying before, uh, it's sad that I have to make all these qualifiers. I'm in no way saying that abortion should not be resisted with everything we've got. And, 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 that, and that that's not a profound evil. It absolutely is. I'm just saying when we make that, pursuit more important than anything else we're vulnerable to the seduction that you're talking about mark like that, that that's yeah. what i'm yeah, and i think one of the things we've got to be careful with is that when we look at what happened at the capitol yeah a lot of people who um electoral politics is its own field of study right and, yeah and, and, and i mean and you can spend you can get a phd in this and what parties have to do to win national elections is interesting. And so in some cases, we have a situation now where the Republican Party, to win a national election, has to find a way to court both uh, Bible study grandmas uh, who are pro-life, as well as sort of white nationalists in the same, under the same roof. The, the same way the Democratic Party uh, has to convince uh, inner city Latinos and African-Americans, as well as uh, Hollywood elites, that their candidate is the best person for both of them. Now, normally these people would never even be together, these, these disparate groups of people, but right. in national politics. And so a lot of the people who are storming the, the, the Capitol are not necessarily the people sitting in the pews at our churches, uh, but there, there's, a, there's a question of, is there a culpability because the people in our churches helped elect the person who stoked this up, right? That, that's the question. Right. Uh, but that, that's the interesting thing about how did we get here? What part of it is how we understand national electoral politics and the, uh, the coalitions and the allies that get created to win national elections. Yeah. Uh, and I would just add, I mean, in fairness, I mean, I, I don't know that you can put all of the nastiness happening in our country at Trump's feet. Mm-hmm. I think the idolatry problem we have was going on a long time before he even came on the scene. So, um, I, you know, I don't, it, he's just sort of 
the latest version of it. Um, but it's not as though that's new. Now, maybe we're seeing a more extreme version of it because his appeal is to maybe some of our worst instincts. And so it feels different. Even what happened at the Capitol, how much of that is his, quote, fault? I don't know. I think that's a hard question. And I think it's too simple to go, well, he just uh, he just stirred everyone up and they went and did it. I mean, I think that's too simple. Um, and I, I think maybe uh, a better way to get at this, too, is that what, what Trump was good at doing, Trump did not invent the concept of fake news. He did not, really? he did not, he did not create uh, this animus towards the left from the right. Right. But because that was there before. Right. Um, and, but there, to use, to go again, there, there's a social imagination that has to be in place. People have to have a certain social imagination yeah. in order for certain arguments to even make sense and, and certain uh, appeals to even make sense. Um, and this gets at to what you were saying, Kevin, in some ways you, you, you have a victimization, right? We, 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 there's a lot of conversation about, uh, and Carl Truman talks about that in his book, right? Where you can look at various social justice movements today are rooted in who's the victim, right? Whether it's LGBT people, African-Americans, who's the victim, look for the victim, look for the oppressor, and now you understand the problem. What's interesting is in, in sort of a twisted way, you also have people who are storming the Capitol who see themselves as victims of something. And so there's this common denominator of victimization and what do I have to do to eliminate being a victim or fight for my right? Um, yeah. So the same way you buy this conspiracy theories because you really believe you're being victimized by the deep state or right. throw in the term. And we didn't even get to like, you know, the weird ecological ideas that are out there that are tied to all of the crazy. So, but that's a different episode. So <laughs> we've, we've sort of answered the, how did we get here? And I don't know if we answered your questions, Mark, or if we, or if we, if we no, I, think it's helpful. I think it's helpful. Yeah. Or, or if we passed your trick question test, I don't know. We'll have to talk about that offline, I guess. But uh, then the question is, where do we go from here? So that's, let's, let's do that next. Yeah. Just as you know, Mark, as an educator, myself and Matt as pastors, I guess we're influencers. Does that, does that make us influencers? I don't have Instagram, so I don't know that I qualify. <laughs> but it may, it may be, and that's, maybe that is part of how we got here. We have too many influencers and not enough ambassadors in the gossip. In the, in the right, right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was just thinking, like, where do we go from here? And, you know, I, I mean, I guess the, the easiest and, and most honest and first answer to that question is simply, I don't know. Um, that's going to take some more thought and some more consideration and will be an evolving kind of answer. Uh, but a couple of things jump out at me in terms of where do we go from here is, I mean, there's some obvious things like we can certainly, you know, just flat out say some things are wrong, you know, violence is wrong, you know, so on and so forth. But I'm thinking more in terms of like, again, like how do we shape our people so that, so that one, they're not beholden to our cultural moment. They're not beholden to the politics of our age but that they live for truly live for the kingdom of God and don't, and don't wed that with the kingdom of man. And how do we start to like untangle some of these really delicate uh, webs that we've weaved? That's hard. I, I, I don't really know. I'm just picking up on some of the threads that we've talked about is you know, again, this idea of victimhood and, and replacing that with no, we're Bible says we're conquerors we're more than conquerors. conquerors. Yeah you know, and this idea of fear and replacing it with confidence in Christ, confidence in God's sovereignty, the idea of, you know, just this exaggerated uh, desire for liberty and replacing it with a love of servanthood. I mean, that seems like a good place to start because if, if we have this idea of our confidence in Christ, that we're more than conquerors through Christ, that our relationship with him is secure, that we are on this earth to serve our fellow man and to make disciples and proclaim the gospel, then things like elections and, you know, the laws of man won't shake us. I mean, we'll still try to shape them fine, but they're not going to shake us. And I think part of what we've seen is just like some people are just some Christians or at least confess confessional Christians are just shaken to the core. And how can, how can life possibly move forward? You know, if Joe Biden is our president and, you know, so on and so forth, 
Um, so I think part of that is just replacing sort of this faulty understanding of what the good life is and, and who we are and, and giving it a new narrative. I don't know how else to do that other than to, <laughs> it sounds like the, the Sunday school answer or the seminary answer, but to just preach the full counsel of God and let it, it, let it do its work. Well, Kevin and I are both sitting here in central PA, um, about 30 minutes apart. And what I do think, and, and, and I, want to, I want to put my, my confessional card on the table. I am a Presbyterian, okay? So I, I, I want to be clear with that, but. Confessed and forgiven. So, you know, it's. Confessed and forgiven, you know, the larger catechism, all that fun stuff, right? But, but, but we may need as Christians in the United States, in the Western world, a healthy dose of Anabaptism. Where, and what I mean by that is, where we're not felt, we don't feel obliged to pull the, the lever for party A or party B. Yeah. Um, you know, this idea that we've been forced into a false binary. No, we've not been forced into a false binary, right? <laughs> Jesus was, you know, the, the, the early church had no problem. There was no binary. Uh, they had zero political power, yet they, they changed the world. I, I think that's something we're going to have to, and I've, I've asked my students this question for a thought experiment. I said, what would you have done in the 2020 election if both candidates were pro-choice? Who would you have voted for? And man, that really stumped them uh, because they've been so, I said, well, what happens if that happens? What happens if the, if whatever, and again, we're not even sure the Republican party is going to stay together, right? We could have a new Whig party come out of this. And this is, this, is, this is something the church has wrestled with since the fourth century is what is our relationship with the state? And, and this, this is the first time American Christians, I think in the last two elections have really just, this has been front and center. Um, and so a lot of people said, hey, I voted this way because of X, Y, Z. Um, and, and, and a lot of it was, pro, was abortion. That was the main issue. But yeah. what, so, so I, I think there's, there's, and I'm not saying I'm ready to become an Anabaptist. Uh, I, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to make my wife wear a bonnet. Uh, there is room for you is, here in the free church, Mark. Here in the, the, I know, the I know, there, I is, know. There, is, there is room for you here. I'm just saying, anyway. But, but there, it's, yeah. as a student of the Reformation and looking at that bigger story, I think there's, there's a healthy understanding there. Maybe I'm not going to go as far as the Anabaptists have gone, but that doesn't mean there's not something there that I can't mine. Yeah. I've voted third party in, in several presidential elections. In, in, in part because I think the two party system is flawed and in part because my conscience wouldn't let me check the box next to either name. Same. You know, and I just, you know, be, oh, you're wasting your vote. Well, I'd rather do that than waste my conscience, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't disagree with you, Mark. I mean, I, if, if any if anything the last two elections uh have caused more in the church to think more deeply about am i just you know blindly committed to a a party or do i need to think more carefully about it and you know that's always a good thing right. to think more carefully about it yeah so i don't know that i can answer answer the question like where we go from here because that's a giant that's for people who are wiser than me you know what i mean like i don't have how how does how does pastor matt respond to it yeah like like like, i think as far as how i'm what i'm looking to do and i look i fully acknowledge that this is a churchy answer but like that's an occupational hazard so i don't i don't know what else to say um i'm going to try and model submission when i disagree uh, as much as possible to have my people see me doing that um so if I can do that, maybe that's, that can lead them into that. And the other thing I'm going to try and do, and I, this is really what I, what I always have tried to do as long as I've been doing this, is I'm trying to adorn Jesus and his gospel in such a way that they find that more attractive than the alternatives offered by the culture. Yeah. So if I, if I can say Jesus is your portion, if he is the strength of your heart and your portion forever, then this is what that looks like. Um, so if I can make, you know, I don't need to like dress it up. That's not what I'm saying. But if I can just pound the drum that Jesus is better, my hope is, is over time, 
that's going to make some kind of difference with my people. Cause I, I don't, I mean, I'm not going to give an accounting for anyone else's people, but mine. <laughs> so that's what I'm trying to do in my little corner of the world is I'm trying to go. Jesus is the best thing. He, 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 he is the reward. He's better than religious freedom. He's better than Roe versus Wade being overturned. He's better than comfort. He's better than uh, all of your dreams coming true. He's better than, I mean, all, I mean, if I can just bang that drum for the rest of my days, you know, I, I, I'm okay with that, whatever the outcome is, I guess. And I think, I think Christians too, I think Christians, and one of the ways I try to teach is I want my students to walk out of a classroom to, to almost be prepared to be cultural cultural archaeologists yeah to be able to you know and they're using obviously they're using the lens of scripture they're using the lens of of of, of theology and the faith but to be able to say okay this what's really going on here what's here um i mean we haven't even talked about and maybe this is a different podcast but how people are even getting their information that's a whole other set of problems. Can right? open worms everywhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, like it's, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's a point where when I teach, I'm not so much concerned about information literacy as much as I am information discernment. Anybody, can right, right, right. But can you discern it? And, and so today, what I think what it means for whether we're in our pulpits or in our lecterns, can we train people to be good cultural archaeologists? Uh, and have a cultural intelligence to be able to say, okay, this is what's going on here. This is what's happening here. Um, and this is how it's even infecting me. Uh, that I think is, is, is something that is, is going to be needed if we're going to move forward and move past this. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the big things that's changed since we were in college, right? In the nineties yeah. is it used to be, we had to go look for the information. Now the information and in the Google age is so readily available. It's a matter of filtering it, evaluating it yeah. and making sense of it. Mark, really glad you could be on today. Well, Pleasure. I, I think we, I think we just came up with three or four more podcast episodes, just <laughs> side topics that we've mentioned, but uh, do you want to tell us the name of your podcast and maybe give us a book recommendation or two that would maybe help people to make sense of things? Right, right. Well, I, I, I our podcast is that I'm where is not up and live, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give you that. Oh, yet. So stay so tuned. Stay, stay tuned. tuned. Yes. Um, uh, but working on a podcast with other scholars, uh, Christian thinkers to to help us sort of discern this um, negotiation between the city of God and the city of man. So very Augustinian. Um, I think uh, book recommendations to kind of start to think about some of what's going on. There's a book called God's Own Party uh, that's been very helpful to me, understanding the rise of the religious right. The author's name is Williams. Um, that's, a, that's a, been a helpful, that's a helpful book to understand the development of the religious right and, and just the political, uh, the way uh, Christian right has become more politicized. Um, same author's also done a book on the unborn. Uh, I think we also mentioned Carl Truman's book. Is, is his new book has been is a super uh, helpful read. Superb book, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, give, um, give us the name of that while we're. It is the rise and triumph of the modern self, cultural amnesia, expressive individualism, and the road to sexual revolution. Don't let the title freak you out. It's more accessible than it sounds. Yeah, um, regular folk can read it. It's not just for academics. So it's a uh, it's it, it's really an excellent resource. I recommend it. I would recommend to you, like you didn't ask me, but I'm answering the question. Uh, Jonathan Lehman's How the Nations Rage uh, is just a good, uh, he, he's a good thinker just in general. I don't know, Mark, if you've read him, but he's yeah, a, yeah, yeah. like, he, uh, th that's, that's just a good book in terms of balancing, okay, how do I think about the political sphere as a crisp Christian? Yeah, which is what he did his PhD work in. So it's fascinating and good. And you threw out a book by Jamie Smith. Um, I'm going to throw out another one uh, that's sort of the, the Sparks Notes for a 900-page book. So you, most people aren't going to want to read. The, you are what you love? Yeah. Uh, no, no. How Not to Be Secular. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is say, essentially the Sparks Notes of Charles Taylor's book, The Secular Age. Um, yeah. Which is a 900-page tome. So very few people are going to And it's it. awesome, by the way. But it yeah, is. Yeah. It is. And, yeah. And, but, but because I think part of this cultural archaeology that has to happen is 
we need to be aware, and I think Taylor is very good at this, uh, is, is helping us understand how did we get to this point intellectually? Um, how did we get to this point epistemologically? Yeah. Those, are, those are some of the questions that, and, and that's where I think I've been able to kind of look at, when I look at what happened and I'm looking at the, the politics of our day and, and just the cultural war that, that's been going on for the last 50 odd years, it really is, uh, Taylor's work has been super helpful in helping me shape some of my understanding of that. Yeah, and very few people can I say, hey, read this book, and they're going to read 900 pages. But I might get them to read 200 pages of how not to be psychic. Yeah. Well, cool. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah. You've been listening to Matt and Kevin and Mark talk church. We hope that what you've heard has been helpful and edifying, trying to sort out our cultural and political moment. If you have any questions you'd like us to answer, topics you'd like us to discuss, you can always email us at mattandkevintalkchurch at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at mktc that being said i'm matt and i'm kevin we've been talking church and our political moment in 2021 be warm and be fed <laughs>